namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa puttam dhammam sangham nasami so these satipatthanas is the mind chitta the word chitta here, it's not the only word used for mind, it's probably the most common one. And this is to give us an idea of what is meant by this term. How does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? And understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. Mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate goes through the list delusion affected and unaffected contracted distracted exalted unexalted surpassed unsurpassed concentrated unconcentrated liberated and unliberated understands unliberated mind as unliberated mind. This way abides contemplating mind as mind internally. Abides contemplating mind as mind externally. Abides contemplating mind as mind both internally and externally. Or abides contemplating in mind its arising factors, its vanishing factors, both its rising and vanishing factors, or else mindfulness that there is mind is simply established to him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. He buys independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That's how a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind as mind. So we can see this experience we call mind affected. It's responsive, it's affected, so it's a sensitive uh, experience, being affected, produces various what are called volitional tendencies, such as lust, passion, delusion, and uh, also could be not producing those. So it has an option. It's affected and it has an option can be not affected and so forth um, and also it seems to be able to have boundaries it's both be contracted sort of tightened in distracted, scurrying out so it seems either to be too tightly compressed or just scurrying distracted, broken up into all kinds of fragments you might say so in a way, it also has it almost like a, uh, um, uh, a dimension. Surpassed and unsurpassed, exalted, sometimes exalted and unexalted, it can also seemingly be elevated, uplifted, uh, perhaps more sublime. So it's got like a tonal quality, where it can be more refined. 
and of course less refined, so it's tonal. Right. Tonal, if that means anything to you. Um, concentrated and unconcentrated, it can be stable, steady, or not stable, not steady. Liberated and unliberated. The word liberated here doesn't refer to Nibbana, which is often expressed as uh, complete knowledge and liberation, but it is liberated at this particular time from this particular influence, though in a more relative sense. So you can also experience degrees of release and freedom, and obviously the opposite. So it's, as you might say, it's a transcendent possibility. It's affected. It has a certain boundary or dimension to it. It can be tonally bright, subtle, sublime, or the opposite, gross, uh, crude. Uh, Or it could also be um, stable, unstable, certain groundedness uh, to it. It can have, if you like, a, a stability factor. And it can be experienced, it can be transcendent, it can experience release to a degree. Mm. And of course this last property is the one that the Buddha is saying this is the top of the list. Take this to the furthest boundaries. And what is that? And there's a lovely little sutta, Book of the Tens, the Angutra Nikaya 81. It says the Tathagata dwells with chitta unrestricted by form, unrestricted by feeling, unrestricted by perception, by sankharas, by consciousness, by aging, sickness, death, and suffering. Mm. Boundless, unrestricted. So we say this is the possibility. Mm. And the uh, one of the ways in which this possibility is being cultivated and developed is through mindfulness established on chitta. So, and independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So we can see, first of all, the explanation of the various um, modalities of the citta. And then there's also a reference to uh, how one contemplates it, witnesses it internally, externally. How do you witness externally or bahida there? Does it mean you read other people's minds? Mm, probably mm, very few could do that. And who'd want to? <laughs> Is it one enough? <laughs> could be. But uh, for <laughs> we could have rough estimates. What we imagine other people's minds mind is obviously affected by hate. But you can be entirely sure. Mm. But that's possible. 
Another way I'd suggest is you can review your own mind, say, this is a mind affected by your will. Mm. It's like that, it does this. And how is it from internally, internally, subjectively, we might be in the experience of ill will, with a sense of heat, pressure, uh, flooding, uh, affecting the body, and passion rushing through the veins, just feeling it in itself as an experience. This is Jitta doing this. And one can clean. Clean could be on either of those bases, can't it? So we might cling externally. This is my mind, I'm like this, this is what I am, I'm always like this. I'm always negative or positive. We form of like a, a character description or a mental description, clunk, stuck. Uh, or internally, you know, that is the, the flood of, of, of feeling, perceptions, internal qualities such as that. So, paralyzes our attention, so hypnotizes us that we can barely really see what's going on around us. We're just so swamped or flooded or biased by our own uh, internal processes that we don't even really know it. Yeah. And we can certainly, you can see in the public domain, kinds of, uh, obviously there are people, uh, obsessive people who are uh, criminal people or people who have just become completely flooded with their uh, evil intentions to the point where they don't even recognise it as such, they think it's right or just. But on another level we can see that same thing occurs with people's desire for justice, they would like to have other people killed, punished, hurt because of what's happening in their own mind. Inability to forgive or let go. Or people with strong views and opinions, demagogues, fundamentalists, what's happening in my mind is true and right and exactly the way I cling to that and then impose it on the world around us. Clinging internally, clinging externally, And what is the result of that clinging? Clinging internally, one forms a sense of mm, this is true, this is right. Clinging externally, that's the world, that's who she is. We form our opinions and views, cling to those perceptions, mental creations established on the world or other people. Now oh, you can look at it like this. I'm trying to provide some pragmatic examples of how this occurs, and recognizing, yeah, this is nothing that unusual. <laughs> and what's it based upon? Um, so the uh, uh, you know we can very well say, well, you shouldn't cling, you should let go, uh, but <laughs> that isn't really how it works. Certainly, that's the aspiration and the encouragement, but how, do you, how does that happen? How does one pull out of the fascination, intoxication with mind states, mental perceptions? 
how does one pull out even one dislikes them extremely you know flooded with misery I'd like to pull out of it but I'm swamped by it how does one pull out of it well as I've said before one of these uh, ways of doing this is just to use the body as a kind of as a reference point just get down to your feet walk up and down you know feel the frame of your body space around you, breathing in, breathing out, get some perspective on what's churning away. And just get some perspective on it. Don't start blaming it, taking issue with it, uh, saying whose fault it is, this is of little use at this particular time. Just as the Buddha said, you know, if you have somebody shoots an arrow in you, you don't waste your time wondering out why they did it and who did it and what kind of arrow it was, you just pull it out. You can do the figuring later. So it's important to, first of all, get a, a stuck thing to stop being stuck so you're constantly reiterating it and formulating it and obsessed with it and identified with it so it becomes you. And this is exactly what happens. Clinging gives rise to becoming. Becoming means that, that uh, a clung-to uh, experience very much forms an identity. An identity based upon jitta. As we recognize jitta takes certain forms. We might say a person is hard-hearted. Why hard, what do you mean hard-hearted? It, you know what you mean. The jitta takes a certain form, a dimension, even a, a tone. Person is soft-hearted. Person is broken-hearted. Yeah, they're all referring to something that we can all acknowledge. There's a certain shape or texture to the jitta. He's downhearted. Yeah. And various other terms: broad-minded, narrow-minded, uh, fixate, fixed, stable. So, and then these patterns. Then becoming that, it forms the mind. This is why it's called a mental formation. These formative tendencies, perceptions that begin to trigger formative tendencies, sankharas, become formations and it forms you. And being formed, hard-hearted or soft-hearted or broad-minded or narrow-minded one acts in that way and therefore it's perpetuated for good or for bad some of it's good some of it's not good really a broad-minded person will probably get irritated with narrow-minded people (laughs) you get those people who are just all expansive and exalted and they're fine they wonder what and they get exasperated other people can't be that way yeah So even we cling to it as this is a final state. You know, even things like the boundless—you know—you're experiencing boundless state. My mind is boundless. I've attained boundless consciousness. So yeah, they think, who is this pompous fool? Why don't they do the washing up like everybody else? Identifying with (laughs) 
because I'm in this, I'm a boundless consciousness, this means I can't break the law because I'm too busy being boundless. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like these things. I'm joking a bit, really, but certainly living in in spiritual centres, you do get this kind of thing happen. Yeah, and so if you get somebody coming, claim to be a street mentor, you think, oh, oh street mentors come in. This is going to be difficult. Even worse, the anagamis. Oh God, because <laughs> they're not. They can't do this because they're an anagami, and, and the arahants, and bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are the worst of all because they're trying to convince everybody else as well. Arahants are generally not too bad. They keep quiet. So it's identifying with certain states, and maybe people had had certain experiences, uh, you know, even liberated experiences. But the right way to perceive this is, currently I do not experience the five hindrances right now. You know, I'm not suffering very much right now. End of story. <laughs> you know, we don't need to make claims around being anything. And when that happens, we should be very careful. It probably means we're deluded. Mm. Yeah, you know, histories. And people who have gone into cessation. I'm in cessation. There's nobody here. Oh, Lord. This means they've gone psychotic. <laughs> So clinging internally, one becomes a self dependent upon that particular state. And this is always the end result. Of course, a lot of it's much more mundane than that. You know, deep, deeply sad. Depression, anxiety, uh, you know, oversensitive in certain respects, or just, you know, oh dear. But you can't say, well, just stop it. <laughs> It doesn't work like that. Because it's clinging process, nobody clings. It's just there is a mechanism that occurs and it just takes over. And the, the cause of that has to be understood uh, and search for security. There's a lot of it. Clinging to views, so we've got an internal security clinging to territory, we've got an external security. Hmm? Clinging to sense pleasure, so we're getting some happiness. Hmm? Clinging to ideas about ourselves, so we feel stable, although we don't feel stable. These are clearly, these are deep needs that chittas have. And so the Buddha said, yeah, but the best way to fulfill those needs, actually, is the happiness of peaceful mind, of virtue, dwell upon that. The happiness of goodwill, dwell upon that. Dwell upon it. You don't need to be an identity to feel good. You don't need to have territory to feel secure. Your territory is the four foundations of mindfulness. Stay within there, you're safe. So with this four 
satipatthanas as one's territory. It means we don't have houses, belongings. We have a relationship to experience that has to be worked upon, steadied, made complete. We have a relationship to form. We have a relationship to feeling. We have a relationship to mind. We have a relationship to mental phenomena that has to be steadied, stabilized, practiced, so that bodily experience, internally, externally, is known as such, does not take over. It's not a source of fascination or disgust. Feeling doesn't set fire, set us on fire, one way or another. Unpleasant feeling, pleasant feeling is known as such. Handled, met, noticed as arising, subsiding. Mind states uh, do not intoxicate or crush us, they're known as such. Dhammas, mind objects are known as such. The rising, passing. There's a relationship there. Steady and agile. How do you handle feeling? How do you handle mind? What is the handling of mind? What is the meeting around mind? Push it? Squash it? Meet it? No, no, no. Meet it. Meet it. How is this? Meet it. Stand in your body. Stand in the body experience, noticing the mind is like this. Walk up and down. The mind is like this. It's like this. It's like this. How do you meet it? Steady. Mind, uh, an attitude of sympathy. Compassion. Goodwill. A mind that knows the skills of care for restraint. Stewarding one's attention. Don't go there. Just don't go there. Be careful. Stewarding one's intentions. Don't keep aiming for that. Just put it down right now. Relax. It'll be better for you. It's caring. As a wise parent. Where does that come from? Recognising, at least in theory, practising it. All of this mental states, intentions, attentions, modes of attention, what we, what we experience, is not to be adhered to, and it will be adhered to, unless one has mindfulness to know it as such. So we'd like, deeply like to not have at all, we'd like to dismiss, but that's not the function of mindfulness. Mindfulness just is, doesn't add, doesn't subtract, stops the proliferation. It's called the flood checker, the flood stopper. It means we feel a sense of grief or despair, it's known as that, rather than flooding into lamentation, into anguish, into blaming, into obsessiveness. We, feel, we experience uh, unpleasant feeling as this. How is unpleasant feeling held with mindfulness. Well, you realise that when unpleasant feeling touches the mind, the mind 
gets very stirred and agitated. Could it be that as a backstop we at least try to sense how that's affecting us in a bodily way? Whether we feel restricted, compressed, spun out, stirred, can we establish, go back to the body? Just the ground, the hit of feeling. Can we examine it more fully? This is impact impression, one notices something. This is designation impression. One's mind starts to name it and measure it and analyze it and decide about it and proliferate around it. Can this be checked? Well, this is the Sankara aggregate. And Sankara aggregate is always about doing and making. And rather like uh, one of the the, uh, recommendations I would make is always, well, first thing you do, stop doing. Because rather like somebody who's, you know, stuck in quicksand, the faster they run, the deeper they sink. The more they struggle, the more entrenched they get. Is it possible to just pause on the action button? Shift the attention. Uh, Right now, body, awareness, presence. Uh, It just stops the proliferation. And the beauty of this um, Buddha's understanding was that although this clung experience, clinging experience seems so locked and indeed feels so locked uh, and is tremendously potent it's rather like um, like a waveform that appears like a vortex you look at a vortex look at a current in the stream it looks pretty as a whirlpool there definitely there yeah you thrash around it with a stick, it's not going to get any less. But if you cut off the flow into that, it subsides. So similarly with clinging, yeah, it's a very potent vortex. It's got a gripping potential to it. Stop putting energy into that, it subsides. So there can be the release from clinging through checking the flow into it. The flow into it so it is, is a blurred state of compulsion. Got to, have to, need, want, must have, must get, can't, shouldn't, ought to, try to do, you know, it's kind of blurred, flustered state where the mind is not steady, has lost sati, is going into activation. And out of activation, only more activation can be expected to occur. And when you're already overactivated, that's not what you need. They're pausing, checking, stopping, wait, where's this going? And probably in that moment, most of us will begin to recognize, hey, I've been here many times before. (laughs) I've been in this pattern many times before. I've complained many times before. I've berated myself many times before. I've got desperate many times before. I felt overwhelmed and righteous many times before. Where did it take me? 
suffering <laughs> for myself and for others. This strategy is not working. Stop, check, pause, breathe out, body, stabilize, release. And this is, you know, kind of at least a, an opaya, a means that one can, I don't think one can ever really um, um, make a mistake with that. I mean, pausing is never a bad idea. And bearing witness to what's going on always seems like a good idea. And uh, trying to fathom where this is coming from, that's possible, but at least pausing and checking and countering the flow. So that's called the touch. Often these uh, release experiences are associated with the word pusati, to touch. One touches the deathless in one's body. One touches the indriyas in one's body. One touches the jhanas, the immaterial jhanas in one's own body. There's something about the sense of something that actually shifts like a almost a tactile impression. Clearly this is a metaphor. There's no fingers in that, but the sense something is really like, like a tactile impression, whether at first it was held and clung and stuck, and then there's a sense of, oh, release. And you touch the release. The release is, is felt as a shift. The absence of pressure, like just coming out of a storm, you know, and then through that release, then the other metaphors used are to do with seeing. One sees with wisdom how oh, that arose from there. But first of all, that letting go is almost like exactly that. It's like a tactile metaphor, as clinging is a tactile metaphor. It's not a visual one. It's a tactile, physical one, isn't it? Grip, hold, and then absence of that. Then looking into that, what was the if that that release state or that momentary release state? What was the trigger? What was the cause of that? Rightly speaking, we'll probably begin to recognise it was a perception, probably maybe a very deeply rooted perception about oneself or others and investigating that what gives it its power feeling surge of feeling how is feeling handled in the body all dhammas converge on feeling is the expression the mind objects they, they get their grip, they take hold, they imprint themselves, they converge upon feeling. So always go back to the, the feeling, pleasure, pain. Mm. And how is that handled? Because whereas mental feeling goes into perception and proliferation, physical feeling goes into the body, energy, possible of 
relax, discharge. Straight. Requires clearly requires a, a good degree of skill mm-hmm. and reminders many 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 times because this uh, grip is far from being deeply felt and impressed. It becomes something one even searches for. Get a grip on things. Let me know who I am. I like to be definite about the future. I like to have definite place, definite people, definite thing. Don't let it change. We really want that. We want that certainty. And the Buddha is saying, as many of us are told time and time again, there isn't one in this domain that you're looking for in in conditioned phenomena there is no certainty Uh, what do you mean future cling to the future the vision the great idea how it's going to be you will suffer cling to the future the misery how rotten it's going to be you will suffer cling to the past the good old days now it's not like that anymore you will suffer Cling to the past, the bad old days, regret, grudge, resentment, you will suffer. How many of us find ourselves doing that? Good old days, and this is that, the architects was this, good old days, suffering. <laughs> Bright future, chitters will be this, Sangha will grow forever, Buddhism, we will suffer. <laughs> We didn't come here to bring Buddhism. We, bring here to, we came here because we invited to continue our practice by generous people. End of story. The rest of it, just see what happens. Flexible, fluid. It doesn't have to be a success. None of us have to be successes. What a relief. We just offered the requisites to attempt to live the holy life. And yet, you know, what happens? We can get into succeeding. Oh dear, monasteries thinning out. Bad old days are coming. Gloom, despair. Oh, wonderful, Ajahn so and so. Oh God, is this row of despair? <laughs> oh, bright new Anagarika. Wonderful. Oh goodness, she's disillusioned, despair. <laughs> so on. They all get our ideas. This isn't my ideal of what a forest monastery should be like. You're not living up to my idea of what a forest monastery should be like. <laughs> but we didn't say we would <laughs> live up to somebody's ideas about it. <laughs> you don't live up to my idea of what Ajahn should be. But I didn't promise I would. <laughs> I'm trying to help out, do what I can. I didn't promise that I will be the most marvellous people, exactly the one you need. No, that wasn't on the contract. I'm not going to be the most effective, efficient abbot who gets everything going. I'm just going to try and serve the Sangha. <laughs> you know, it's like, get on with it. 
and realize that you've got to be this flexible, fluid structure whereby, yeah, there is a structure and it's the cult of in here. You know, externally, you have the vinya and protocols, you make agreements, then we try to abide with that. And again, it's not absolutely cast in stone. There's things we're very firm about, things we're a little more flexible about, things we kind of, well, okay. It's not rigid. Protocols, well, they, they, yeah, best if we did it that way. It's not rigid. It's fluid. Do we can. Yeah. You know, if you can keep the eight precepts, that's good. That's good. Yeah. And enjoy the good that you can do and the skills that are in the place. Internally, or you might say our own personal responsibility is mindfulness. Manage the flood of the aggregates their passion, their power. Through mindfulness, see all this as arising, passing. If it doesn't pass, if it doesn't change, what's stuck? Why? How is it stuck? Something doesn't arise, what's needed? What factors, what, what dhammas have been neglected? Faith, energy, sati, mindfulness, goodwill. Yeah. Ah, bring attention to these. So this is the way we, we, we gather these resources. Recognizing without these resources, we, clinging is inevitable. Just as you tell a you know, drowning man in the ocean, don't hang on to that rotten piece of wood, he's not going to let go. But if a boat comes along, he certainly will. So we build this uh, boat, Dhammavinia, and okay, we can then release that because this is better, more comfortable for our, for our abiding in the here and now. Uh, in this way, we abide alive to the experience of the Dhammavinia, living it, cultivating it, being guided by it, independent of anything in the world. Anyone? Anyway.